Hello and welcome to episode 26 of The Crit and a very happy new year to all our listeners. My name is India Block. And my name is Ollie Stratford. Happy new year, India. Happy new year to you, Ollie. Um, We're almost closing out January. How have your resolutions fared? Very good. I resolved to take up Kung Fu and um, it's, it's proceeding swimmingly. Well... I remain the worst in the class, bar for one other person who's a 13-year-old boy. And to be honest, he shows uh, more talent, <laughs> but has been coming for far fewer weeks. So that's a little bit depressing because I'm the least deadly. And um, I asked my instructor last night when I did training when he thought I might be able to grade, which is the uh, the first bit where, where you get your lovely belt. And... Um, he made non-committal remarks about a lack of control over movement, so it's not looking hugely promising. Oh, so you, you don't even get a belt now? I, I'm, I'm beltless. beltless. Yeah, I'm entirely beltless. He won't even tell me yet where you buy the special kung fu trousers. I think maybe that comes when you're a little bit more advanced oh, and can uh, handle has, them. He has told you where to buy the special kung fu shoes. Yes, yeah, uh, through him. <laughs> 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 through him but no that's not fair you buy the t-shirts through him uh the shoes you buy elsewhere but he's it's quite an impressive little uh money-making operation each week new essential equipment emerges which you'll need to become a master of kung fu oh this is a genius scheme yeah it is how about you how are your resolutions going um how are my resolutions going one of my resolutions was to read my book instead of scrolling through Twitter in bed every morning, which has been mixed results, I'd say, Mm. especially as it's quite cold in the mornings. I was going to say, I've also seen you live tweeting spare quite regularly. (laughs) That's true. I I forgot to um, to put a sub clause into this resolution that live tweeting a book as you're reading it still counts as being on Twitter. Yeah, sometimes different fields need to intersect. Literature needs to be uh, broadcast over Twitter. It's important. It's discourse. <laughs> it's discourse in action. The world does not need any more of my discourse, and this is why I tried to make that resolution. And, um, uh, well, you know, there's still 11 months of the year to work on it, so I'm yeah. not giving up hope just no, yet. No, I don't, I don't think you should. I think it would be a premature surrender. <laughs> Uh, But it's lovely to be back with the Crit listeners. Uh, We'll be here all year offering design news, tearing tearing apart sounds a bit aggressive as to what we're doing to the news, like we're feral, Uh, picking apart. That sounds like vultures. Expanding upon. (laughs) Expanding upon design news and offering analysis of what's going on in the design world. January is normally a little bit slow for design, I think. It's one of those fields which takes some time to warm up, like an old car. But there actually are some interesting stories already, which is what we're going to be doing this episode. Right, so I know we just said that January is a very quiet month for design, but actually it's one of the biggest months for technology. The Consumer Electronics Show, commonly known as CES, um, was held in Las Vegas in the, the first week of the year. But I think it's very strange that we don't count this as part of the design calendar. Yeah, I agree. It's something that we've discussed quite a while with Desenio, the journal we both work on, which is why we don't go more regularly. I think Desenio has been to CES once, um, 
Christina Rapatsky, formerly of this parish, visited and had... I don't know if she had a nice time. <laughs> I think she had an interesting time. Um, and it is a real, it's a really odd thing because CES is massive. It's one of the world's huge trade fairs and it's where all the consumer electronics uh, brands come and show off what they're doing. Sort of your Samsungs, your Sonys, your Microsofts. And for whatever reason, a lot of design journals don't go in the way in which design magazines always send people to Slone del Mobile in Milan each spring, which is furniture. And part of me, which is great, I'm not knocking it, but part of me thinks, why, why don't we go and see the consumer electronics, though? Because that's clearly design. And I think probably, if we're honest, has a larger impact on the way people are living now. Well, it's definitely design. And also, I think it's interesting because when you go to Salone or other design weeks or trade fairs, there's a real interest from designers and studios and brands in technology. So it seems strange that there's this kind of church and state divide. You'd think there'd be yeah. much more opportunity for kind of cross-pollination if, if you know, and also the, the technology people should probably come to Milan and see what's going on there. Yeah, no, I think so. I, some of this is just logistical, though, right? It's much easier for European design magazines to pay and send people to Milan for a couple of days than it is to ship someone halfway around the world to Las Vegas. But I don't know if that fully accounts for it. Um, well, I guess Las Vegas is very convenient for the West Coast and the big budgets of the heyday of print press are are long gone long gone <laughs> whereas technology with the technology guys have enough money to send out troops and troops of people to Milan so but I think you're right there's this very artificial division between what's design and what's technology and it's something we struggle with a bit in the publications we do I mean one of our publications design reviewed has a category which is specifically called technology and I'm pleased we have that category because it definitely captures something and is important. But at the same time, I struggle with it a bit because it is quite artificial as to what goes in there, what counts as technology. And could those same technologies not go into other categories? Could they not go into object, interface or whatever? Which, yeah, I guess they could. But I don't quite know why people treat that barrier as such a hard barrier. Mm -hmm. And also, I think from the list that we've pulled together here of of launches and new products and redesigns to go through. There's definitely some of them that I think could have benefited with the kind of rigorous thinking that happens with design. Yeah. Well, do you want to lead us through? Because yeah, you, okay. you did some digging I've... into this, didn't you? And mm-hmm. saw uh, a couple of the launches, both good and uh, maybe not so good. So one of the most exciting ones I think you and I were both um, pretty thrilled to see was Sony PlayStation 5's uh, Project Leonardo. Yeah. Which, um, it's a customizable controller for disabled gamers. Yeah, it's quite an exciting one. So it's very, uh, it can be adjusted between users. So you can set up the controller to suit your level of mobility. So it just opens up that field to a huge number more people. It's a really positive change, I think. And one I particularly like, because a lot of sort of universal design and design for people who may have mobility issues or disabilities is often quite belt and braces. It's quite agricultural and focuses on essentials. And things like play are really important as well. They're treated as superfluous or or, or an optional extra, but they're kind of 
essential to a, a good life. I realise I'm now saying having access to a Sony PlayStation 5 is essential to a good life. And it is. It's very important. Um, but play in general and things like that, and I think opening up those areas is a really good step for universal design. Mm-hmm. Well, I think because, you know, you're playing through an interface uh, in many ways gaming should be the most accessible area that we have Mm. but not having kind of the basic tools that people need um i think you know is almost an oversight i mean xbox has its adaptive controller which came out in 2018 that was you know it's just under 75 pounds which is fairly reasonable i suppose i don't actually own a playstation Uh, what's a controller uh, usually priced at it's roughly commensurate a regular Mm -hmm. controller is maybe around 60 or something like that so 74 is not hugely out of the bounds of Mm -hmm. the existing pay structure yeah and we don't have a price for the project leonardo yet but loads It does look really cool. Yeah, it's it's really nice, isn't it? It's got a big joystick and then a sort of circular ring mm. of different functions around it. I, I'm interested to see someone play around with it, though, and see it in some different permutations, mm-hmm. if that's the whole idea that it can adapt. Yeah, because the buttons can be switched around and you can um, you can kind of map different functions onto buttons, which would help with button combos. Yeah, I, I think it's a good project. You know, it's it's often you see technology being applied when it isn't really a problem and it's just being applied for the sake of it and i'm sure we'll get to some of those projects but it's very nice when you see something where you think yeah this is meeting a real need this is an interesting and worthwhile thing to have done and in that vein another um project that i was really excited about was the Hapter, which is um from l'oreal big makeup brand And this is a device that helps you apply lipstick. Again, if you have mobility issues and uh, it has a kind of big handle that's easy to grip and then the self-leveling technology inside the kind of main stem and then you can... Oh, so like stabilises it as Mm, you use mm -hmm. it, right? Yeah, 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 so if you've got kind of like tremors or like you can't like hold your hand still and like you know because it's quite a laborious process putting on lipstick um you can just snap the bullet of your lipstick into the top and then kind of do a couple of swipes and I think it's really interesting as well because I can see this having um applications for older users as well not necessarily Mm. kind of disabled users yeah definitely you know if you um my father, he has uh, sort of arthritis in his fingers and finds that a lot of these like fine emotions, for instance, he used to he used to like modeling are now impossible. And that's like quite common. You know, lots of people get arthritis in their joints and something which until then you've taken for granted and seemed such a minor thing. It can be quite depressing if you can't do it again. And I can definitely see the application of lipstick being part of that. And I think, again, it's this thing which it would be easy to dismiss Lipstick is in some ways frivolous or non-essential, but it really isn't. It's it's something which people enjoy and which is an, an important part of life. And making sure everyone who wants to can have access to that is a very good thing. The the other L'Oreal product, which I've I've put in here, but is perhaps not as essential, or perhaps I fear has like a chance to go wrong, is Brow Magic. What's Brow Magic? It's a it's a printer for your eyebrows. So. <laughs> You take a photo of your face okay. and then it uses augmented reality with this app that they have and you pick the eyebrow shape 
that you desire. Okay. And then you it maps kind of onto your face and you just roll it across your face and it will print a semi-permanent ink eyebrow, giving you that kind of microbladed effect where you oh, get okay. these, But no needles and apparently it, it comes off with makeup remover, but you will get perfect symmetrical brows. Yeah, that slightly <laughs> alarms me as well. I don't know why it alarms me, but I I think I'm like worried it would get hacked and someone would draw a cock and balls or something <laughs> on your brow. Uh, or or hate speech or that that makes me slightly nervous the idea of a robot drawing on my face. Yeah, I mean both you and I are quite blessed in the brow department. So <laughs> we're both quite full of brow. <laughs> we are quite bushy of brow. I can't see myself needing to to print over my brows at all. In fact, I think it would it would end up. I uh, I clip my eyebrows slightly. I uh, I have a little uh, a little machine. Which, you know, just takes off the very long ones. The ones Ooh. where you sort of look and think, that's too long. Oh, like, that one is sh- unpleasantly you could, long. You could really lean into a European philosopher of note if you just let them grow out <laughs> wild, bushy and Oh, free. the very wild, like mm. the wild, mm-hmm. wiggly ones yes. coming off. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm very happy with the tech. Um, if any eyebrow tech companies would like to sponsor the crit, uh, they could email producer Evie, I suppose. Uh, would be nice. Email the crit at desaniojournal.com and Evie will be happy to talk financial packages with you. Another another project that um, I think is uh, very useful, again, it's kind of in the uh, disability elder care arena, is the Nobi Fall Detection Lamp. So this is a lamp that uses radar, camera, microphones to detect whether someone has had a fall and then it can alert your caregiver or your family that you're in trouble and you need some help. Mm. It's already in use in European care homes and now they want to roll out a more kind of subtle domestic version for people to use in their own homes. This one similarly, I have slightly mixed feelings about. I, I'd be curious to know how it's done in care homes. I think I have that slightly dystopian thing of sort of something like, oh, should we check on... Grandma is like, no, it's fine. I've put the lamp on. It's it's watching her. It's fine. I, I can see a use for it, definitely. And in care homes where uh, caregivers are very overworked, it would be a useful thing. But sometimes, I suppose, with tech, you have that slight concern of, oh, is, is technology being implemented to replace what in the past you know, uh, family or friends would have provided? Although there are issues with that too, mm-hmm. but... I find it slightly dystopian, a lamp watching to check if you've fallen. I think one of the concerns they try and address is that, um, you know, they keep the data quite tight. It doesn't just kind of go out to emergency services. Um, You can change it so that instead of... (laughs) It alerts the press. (laughs) The moment there's a fall, it alerts whichever your most local newspaper is. And sends a picture of you sprawled on the floor (laughs) With full rights to publish it, yeah. Um, No, it can actually stop um, you. It doesn't have to send out images. It can send out little stick figure diagrams. Um, The next sort of technology advancement they want to make is they want to use what they call fall prediction. So they can notice if someone looks a bit wobbly on their feet and then they could send out an alert kind of so that you can be there even quicker. Oh, I mean, okay. obviously, it's it does lead to that kind of question of sort of like, oh, why aren't we looking after our elders back in the day? You'd have like moved grandma in with you. But we're living much longer. Um, 
than we used to live mm. and people do want to live independently. Yeah, which is important for sure. And, you know, might not necessarily always have a panic alarm on them or near them. I guess it's not perfect, but if it helps people facilitate independent living that, you know, they want to be able to live alone for longer. Yeah, no, I mean, I'd probably rather read about this and hear reports from people who've used it as to how it is and discussing it than I would in seeing another curved television being presented at CES or whatever it is. So, yeah, I, I think an interesting project at the very least. Oh, yeah, no, don't worry, there's no television. Te- um televisions in this roundup yeah so kind of going more into that dystopian vein there's a couple here that um gave gave us a little bit of a pause for thought there's Mm. the um the withings u scan which i think has um raised everyone's hackles uh so this is the the toilet sensor that senses your pee okay and it connects to an app and it's ostensibly to monitor your, uh, say, your kidney function. You switch out different cartridges. There's also one that um, can apparently, you know, report on your menstrual health. It sends it all to an app. Uh, and it just seems like a complete ethical nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Uh, I think it's quite nightmarish uh, reporting on your menstrual health. And there's obviously lots of data considerations around that after Roe versus Wade. But just in general, I think there's something slightly grotesque about even your urine being monitored. I, I want my urine to remain unmolested uh, unmolested, and well, also, in my own hands. But I mean, this also implies that you have your own personal bathroom because most of us plebs are sharing a bathroom or, you know, you go to public toilets or, you know, you have guests in your home who'd be using the bathroom. I just, I feel like there's right to privacy issues here. There's... Uh, you know, uh, opportunities for, like, intimate partner violence through control. There's, you know, we're talking about the lamp and, you know, if it doesn't notify you that granny's had a fall, what does that mean? I mean, what if your toilet diagnoses you with kidney disease and or fails yeah. to diagnose you and you ignore symptoms because <laughs> it's telling you that you're fine? A doctor giving you terrible news uh, and you go, but the, the, the toilet never said anything. It, it it feels like tech intruding in a in a space where it really isn't needed or wanted. Yeah, and I can also see corporations and like the carceral system rubbing their hands with glee and asking for a cartridge that monitors for drugs. Yeah, it, it's a slightly nightmarish thing. I, let's hope it doesn't uh, go any further. <laughs> let's hope it doesn't take off. Nip Sorry, it in the bud. Stop it midstream. And similarly, we've had another a ring that is a tracker. It's called the EV ring. Um, it's, as the name suggests, it's marketed at um, women, you know, people who menstruate. I'm not sure how it tracks your menstrual cycle. The information's a bit thin. It does your heart rate, your, your steps, your sleep tracking, uh, your skin temperature. I don't know whether maybe that is informative on kind of where you are in like your ovulation cycle um or whether you just manually track it um yeah again necessary it's a confusing thing i didn't know about these sort of tech enabled rings until quite late last year and i was faintly surprised as to their rise like what's the advantage of putting these things in a 
in a ring? Is it just purely an aesthetic thing that people say, oh, I'd rather have that than a watch or something? Yeah, I guess aesthetics and maybe some people take their watches off to go to sleep. Yeah, maybe it's that. Um, it's I, I, I'm not knocking it. I'm sure it's fine to have a tech-enabled ring if you want it and is no worse than having a tech-enabled um, watch or wristband. But it does feed into that feeling of, God, tech, really, they like cram it into anything they can. Like Anything about your body suddenly becomes tech-enabled. I have limited patience for it, yeah. I have to say. No, definitely. I don't I don't think it's useful or necessary. And actually, interestingly, I've seen a rise in um, sort of stationary design for 2D analogue menstrual trackers are coming back in a big way. I mean, again, you could just buy a diary. But I think people are kind of pushing back against being sold more technology. Rightly so. Also, it's going to be almost £300, which is a lot of money for a ring. It is a lot. And it's quite ugly. (laughs) (laughs) In my design opinion. Um, Yeah, and then the last kind of slightly dystopian thing um, is the E-Connect BD3 bike, which is from Acer, makers of laptops. Yeah. Um, And this is a bike that you have to pedal to power your laptop. Oh, God. So it's an attempt to say, hey, you can get your exercise in. Um, while and at yeah, work. exercise while working yeah. and also a green renewable source of power for your yeah. laptop. It's so pernicious, isn't it? Because it's that thing of, well, you can now exercise at your desk and you think, well, people shouldn't have to be working so many hours. That's the only way in which they can exercise. And I mean, a big part of exercise is it should be a respite in a sense. You should be able to enjoy it and and not be having to do it whilst you're working. I think that's nightmarish in the extreme. Our second story this week takes us from a tech fair to a more traditional design fair. This is the Stockholm Furniture Fair, which opens in early February. Uh, First time back after a few uh, years off with the pandemic. So that's quite exciting in and of itself because it's a really big platform for the Scandinavian design market. But the thing I wanted to talk about is this year's guest of honour. At the fair. So every year they invite a notable studio to create an installation at the um, in the sort of entrance hall. So it's kind of the first thing you see when you come in. And this year's appointment, amazingly, is actually the first ever Swedish studio to receive that. Uh, yeah, award. why is that? Did they, they didn't want to show favoritism to the home team. Genuinely, I don't know. It's a good question. That I cannot answer. <laughs> I'll speculate wildly. <laughs> I I don't I don't know. I I suppose maybe there's something very maybe there's an appeal to it being a sort of international mm-hmm. studio and presenting that side. Perhaps it's been feared that it might seem too insular if mm-hmm. it was a Swedish studio, but that's purely speculation. But I think the thing which is interesting in a way you've uh, tangentially uh, well revealed my ignorance but also hit on something which is really interesting about the studio they've picked which is front which is front is not a very traditionally swedish design studio because i mean if i said to you swedish design studio what would you think what yeah, i'm gonna be thinking blonde i'm gonna be thinking blonde wood or blonde hair blonde wood blonde hair okay. just everything <laughs> blondes as far as the eye can see yeah um you know uh classic minimalism yeah just scandy <laughs> some swedish meatballs 
steaming lightly in the corner. Yeah, that like classic, very tasteful, really beautiful Swedish mm-hmm. minimalism. And that's very much not Front. So Front is a studio that was founded in 2003 by Anna Lindgren and Sophia Lagerqvist. Uh, they're the current members. When it was founded, it was also included Katja Pettersson and Charlotte von der Lanken. And Front, throughout their career, have been this really prescient studio. They do these really provocative projects, which often have been quite ahead of their time. So you can look back to 2005, for instance, when Front went to Milan, to a really young studio, and what they presented was a video game. They showed a video game where they had just developed digital objects for it because they got interested in, oh yeah, well, what what happens to objects when you design them for digital space, when you're not bound by physics or the demands of the market? What do you get out of that? And if you think about it, like we've already mentioned it, how how many studios today are talking about the metaverse all the time and what that does to design? I think, well, that 2005 project is kind of doing that right okay it's not billing it as metaverse but similar concerns emerging there yeah i think it's really interesting as well that they haven't necessarily set out to be kind of cutting edge or trend forecasters that they are very research-led and they're going with things that interest them and they seem to have um kind of you know developed this almost predictive power yeah i think so like you said i don't think they're trying to trend forecast in any way and a lot of their projects when they first came out were um controversial i think one of their most famous projects is animal thing uh for anyone who thinks they don't know it, you probably do it's most famous for a huge uh life-size horse statue done in black plastic for the dutch brand moy with a lamp growing out of its head Uh, So this really figurative lamp, like almost the most figurative lamp you can imagine, like where it's just literally a horse. And that was so divisive when it came out. Some people loved it. Other people hated it. A Swedish newspaper branded it Death in Milan (laughs) when they presented it. This is the crazy... I mean, it just imagine something coming out now that could offend everyone so greatly and that it's a, you know... a horse-shaped lamp. Yeah. But this is almost the curse of being ahead of your time. And I know you've been speaking to them recently. Did that upset them? Or were they pretty sanguine about the whole No, I think they're they're very interested about everything that goes on. So they're kind of, Mm -hmm. oh, that was interesting to learn why did some people react so aggressively towards it. Because I should say they didn't do that project wanting to piss people off or Mm -hmm. upset. It grew out of an earlier research project called Story of Things, where they asked people about projects, sorry, about objects that were meaningful to them in their home. And they discovered people really like figurative objects. And particularly if those objects are animals, people seem to really go wild for them. But at the time, especially in um, uh, Scandinavian design, doing something figurative was like, no, 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 no. We don't do that here. That is bad taste. So this, again, it's the mid-2000s. They sort of presented it as this exploration of this, of we found people really like figurative objects, but at least the design canon at present sees these things as bad taste and bad design. Why is that? I think they're just really curious in that way about things and... So I, I don't get the impression it massively 
bothered there. Mm-hmm. I'm now imagining that meme with the man pushing over the tiny domino that gets like gradually and gradually bigger <laughs> and the tiny domino is captioned front design the horse lamp <laughs> and then the biggest one is Urban Outfitters, everything is boob and butt pots. <laughs> like, because figurative design is everywhere now. Everything is in the shape of an animal or the shape of a bum. Yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. And that's an interesting part of this exhibition because they're very adamant it's not a retrospective. It, it's an attempt to gain a little bit of an insight into their process. And in the way they said, like, that horse project, yeah, you wouldn't do it now because it wouldn't hit in the same way. Now design is much more open to all these different ways of putting forward objects. It's a bit more um, Catholic in its tastes, I suppose. But I think one other thing that I think is really interesting about them is alongside all this conceptual stuff, Lots of these things were really successful commercial products. I think that horse lamp sold pretty well. They've done lots of other projects which have grown out of self-initiated research and then become successful commercial ranges. And I think that's quite a good thing to present at the start of a commercial fair to remind everyone that this research, you know, you might think it's pointless initially, But it often leads to things which the market wants later. It's a bit like the the space race. (laughs) I I do think that's interesting because we've we've spoken to several studios recently who kind of talk about the the side hustles almost that they do or that they take on industrial design projects in order to kind of fund their ability to, to go deeper into research. So it is, I think, really... Uh, good to see a studio that manages to pursue all their kind of weird interests and then turn it into something that's kind of commercially viable. And animals yeah. is like one of this big theme that's running through their works. Didn't they have a project where they had rats chewing the wallpaper? Yeah, <laughs> it's a great one. It's one of their very, very early. It's called Design by Animals. And mm-hmm. exactly like you say, the wallpaper patterns came from letting rats chew through some wallpaper to reveal other wallpaper below. They have um, a lampshade which was done by tracing the path of a fly just whizzing round and round a light bulb. Did they put ink on the fly? No, I think that, I think like motion uh, tracking okay. type thing. <laughs> I was uh, just imagining like this poor little fly being painted and then sent round a lamp. Yeah, the, the, fl- the cool. fly tried to knock off for the day and then went, no, you're pulling an all-nighter. <laughs> this has to be ready for the fair. Um yeah, no, uh, but again, the they, animals do crop up a lot in their work. And I think that they love nature. They, I think, undoubtedly have an interest in that. But animals are often used as a sort of humorous vector for other issues. So that um, design by animals, I think they were more interested in knocking down this idea that the designer is in complete control, you know, which is very easy to think that a project is exactly what a designer envisaged, and they went out and executed it perfectly. Mm -hmm. And you have mastery over the natural world and mastery over natural materials. Yeah, exactly. I think they wanted to say, like, there's a lot of randomness that comes in. You know, things go wrong, you're dependent upon collaborators, yada, 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 all of this. And then they just, I think, did a sort of almost reductio ad ad absurdum, like what would be the most random thing of, well, let's get a fly to design. And just a way to like highlight that and do it in quite a funny, charming way because a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down uh, or whatever. 
Yeah, that's Mary Poppins, isn't that it? That is Mary Poppins, who yeah. also gets the animals to help her yeah, tidy yeah. up the bedroom. So they, they've been very good at things like that, sort of tackling really serious design issues and just finding very funny, engaging, charming ways. So, Did the rats get paid for the wallpaper? Were they on commission? It's a good question. I don't know. Do they do it for exposure? And the genius of the thing is those rats are definitely dead now, so they'd never be able to... <laughs> can't sue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's the first Swedish studio in that position at Stockholm Furniture Fair, but I think a really great one, actually. Just looking back through their career, I, I should, in the interests of transparency, say I've helped out on some of the texts for this exhibition, <laughs> but I had a blast looking back through their work and seeing it and thinking, God, they're like so ahead of their time in a lot of ways, and that they're, they're a studio who deserve celebrating and I think particularly reassuring for maybe young designers who go there who often have these research projects and perhaps have that like faint worry about selling out like oh yeah but you know like what do we do with like a commercial object to try and fund the studio and I think Front have shown you can do these research projects and then from those can grow commercial products that feel an interesting and integrated part of that which don't at all feel a separate area of the studio it's kind of a natural flow between the two so I think they're a a really good example for anyone heading to Stockholm. So the second story I render unto you India this week is also animal related. We talked about front and animals. Um, this is animals in a slightly different context. Do you know uh, Piti Uomo? I didn't actually know this until we were prepping for this issue, but um, I now know that it is a major biannual menswear trade fair that is hosted in Florence every year. It is, exactly. So menswear brands go there, show off their stuff. It's a big deal. Lots of people from the fashion press go. Uh, this year they had a new section, and this was called Pity Pets. It's quite nice to say, Pity Pets. Pity Pets. It pity sounds pet. like the Pity Patty sound of a little pet. Yeah. <laughs> Pit, pity pat, um, which is devoted to animal fashion. Mm-hmm. So brands which are producing jackets and coats and jumpers for cats and dogs, basically. And I got kind of interested in it. One, because I like animals, so any animal store I'm all over. Um, but it's also apparently this is like major business. Uh, so according to a report in 2021... The animal apparel industry, and I should say this includes leashes and collars, so, you know, things you don't necessarily think mm-hmm. of as apparel. Apparently it's worth $5.7 billion, and it's due to reach $7.3 billion by 2028. I don't know why you're surprised by this, because I can... I'm surprised it's almost taken this long, because pets are such a status symbol... I think they're such a magnet for spending one's disposable income. And also, I mean, like, I should preface this with saying that, like, you know, I'm not parroting the lines of kind of the right-wing media about falling birth <laughs> rates. and Or the, was it the Pope said that people keep having dogs instead of having children? Like, ignore all that. If you just want to have your fur babies, have your fur babies. No judgment. But I think pets are 
cheaper they're cheaper than babies uh they are not as an expensive a lifetime commitment they will love you unconditionally i'm not surprised that people are spending loads and loads of money on them i understand the need for some of this stuff i can understand for instance people wanting better designed pet furniture for their home because a lot of pet furniture is really gross and maybe you don't like the look yeah of it. if you want to have um, enrichment in your environment for your animal's environment it would be good if it enriched everyone's environment yeah i can understand the need for some apparel for pets for instance uh you know something like an italian greyhound if you live in norway in the winter probably should have some sort of coat if it goes outdoors what i find a little bit odd is the massive commercialization of it and i think you described well some of the reasons for that before but there's this big movement within design at the moment for more than human design, encouraging us to think more about other forms of life and so on, which I think on the whole is a good and positive move. I find that slightly odd that one of the principal ways we're engaging at the moment with pet life is by foisting this uber consumerist model onto it. There's just so much of this flogging stuff, uh, flogging stuff to the sort of, um, I don't want to say owners because the friends the friends of creatures who fundamentally uh-huh. don't want to yeah i suppose i am a cat owner it's just it's uh yeah i have but that it, it's turning the entire animal into an accessory which i think is really gross pernicious uh, yeah, yeah and it's agree. the same um i kind of feel similarly about um children being used in this way you know like a child doesn't want a prada hat equally a dog definitely doesn't want to be wearing like a 300 pound prada baseball cap you were showing me yesterday like dogs don't need hats yeah and the really funny thing is obviously to fit a dog's skull the hat needs to be quite engineered so it has lots of straps to sort of lock it in place so the ears are accommodated and you look at it and it looks such an over-engineered thing and i think often when you look at something which is over-engineered it's perhaps a sign of Maybe it's just not a good idea. <laughs> if you're having to do this level of engineering to make it work, maybe don't make baseball hats for dogs. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and like, you know, what are you going to do? Just like post pictures of it online for attention? I just, yeah, yeah it's it's not kind to the animals, um, but it clearly is incredibly lucrative. It's lucrative. I think it's here to stay. Um to sit and stay. Very nice, yeah. (laughs) Lovely bit of business. So our last news story is um, a story about virtual power plants. So uh, this is in California. So Google Nest, uh, Ford, General Motors, they have come together to form a coalition with RMI, which is an energy nonprofit. Okay. Um, as along with various uh, makers of solar power um, and kind of smart electrical panels and batteries that one might have in your home. Yeah. It's called the Virtual Power Plant Partnership, or VP3. VP3. Which is quite a snazzy name. It's kind of like that film Me Threegan. With the animatronic doll. <laughs> oh, it is a bit. It like I think VP three sounds a bit like a bomb that was dropped in World War Two or something. <laughs> or I a don't... Star Wars droid, maybe. Yes. Yeah. Uh hack into the terminal VP three or something, yeah. Uh-huh. I don't have that positive connotations with it, but well, is it a good initiative? It is for a good them? initiative. What is this? Yeah. It, their goals are very noble. Um, they want to get everyone to work together to conserve 
electricity, prioritise solar and wind power so that they can reduce um, the state's reliance on gas-powered pica plants. Okay. So these are plants that come on when um, the electricity grid is kind of under stress and you need to boost the power and they tend to be gas-fired and quite polluting. Right, yes, got Um, you. And I think, you know, serendipitously, this has come at a time where California is really in the news for some dreadful... Um, storms caused by this atmospheric river that you can directly link to climate crisis and the climate collapse. There's kind of no denying it that we are in this really awful phase um, with the environment and California is on on the front line. So uh, what exactly is a virtual power plant? How does it work? How does it address this issue? So... It sounds. I was like, is this like a power a power station in the metaverse? This? <laughs> no, it's actually <laughs> entirely run by an army of metaverse Mark Zuckerbergs. Yeah, it's all just shoveling like coal, this is a virtual power plant. <laughs> it's when you build a power plant in SimCity Four. Um, no, it's a it's a network, and it's using basically the internet of things to connect up people's batteries at home their smart yeah. thermostats Why are you laughing? I'm just laughing because I'm thinking like <laughs> it's my least favorite form of design explanation where you get so what is this and someone begins and it's a network and I mean <laughs> I'm not going to understand okay, okay no 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 it's real it is I, I I'm obviously not describing it well enough it's basically so your smart home thermostat and your electric vehicle charging point and your solar panels on your roof and the power battery that you have at home can all talk to other ones in the neighborhood. Okay, yeah. And then, for example, um, you come home at night and you tend to plug your your car into charge. Yes. But at night is when everyone's plugging their cars into charge and also the sun is not out, so solar pan- power is not as at its peak. Yeah. So yeah. if you were hooked up to a virtual power plant system, it might be like, oh, would you like to actually charge your car in the morning instead if you don't need to take it out again first thing? Yeah. Um, yeah. Likewise, uh, it's getting a bit cold and you've forgotten, you know, you've left your heating on really high and your thermostat might be like, do you want to turn it down a couple of degrees? Yeah. And if everyone in an area turns their thermostat down by a couple of degrees, you can reduce stress on the power grid. So it's managing and sharing the load more evenly. Mm-hmm. Yes. Trying to like match demand with supply. And then also the bit that is more complicated and I... I'm not sure the technology is necessarily there to do it right now, although Tesla Powerwall has done it last summer during the California heat wave, is you can use people's domestic power batteries that, you know, their own solar panels are storing to send energy back to the grid. I mean, like you, I'd I'd be curious to know more about that, like how Mm, much energy mm -hmm. can actually be returned is it almost a symbolic gesture or does it mount up when you have multiple ones doing it but okay but the 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 first part of it this idea of just sharing information and trying to stagger when energy is being used such that it remains more manageable that strikes me as a good idea a good program i think it it broadly sounds good and some of it does sound hyperbolic. The idea that you could use people's electric vehicles as a kind of battery to power the grid 
seems quite far-fetched like yeah. you need so many cars to do it we're going to hook up a load of those bikes connected to laptops and everyone's going to pedal <laughs> and we're all going to pedal like our lives depends on it we're going to go great guns and send that energy back yeah. yeah i mean i think the biggest concern i have is that it's um it's not a government scheme this is private companies yeah. and uh, you know an ngo coming together to find a solution which you know it does make me wonder um you know you don't want your home device to force you into charging at certain hours or that might not suit some people's schedules not everyone can afford an electric car or a smart thermostat yeah 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 it has that slight edge which a lot of tech projects have i think of faffing around the edges of a problem like slightly nudging it and you think oh yeah that might be good i suppose that's not bad without engaging with the deeper issue of maybe we need to think about our energy consumption or maybe we need to think about where our energy is coming from and and consider those larger more structural changes it has that very um utop well is it utopian uh has slight utopian inflections tech bro thing of hey if we just nudge your behavior slightly you can all carry on doing exactly what you're doing and and buying all our goods um but we'll be on the right track and that will fix it yeah so I, i think that side yeah is questionable yeah very nudge theory and also very much um the power is in your hands and uh, actually the government doesn't need to do anything about the fact that it's building, you know, a coal-fired yeah. power station here in the UK. I was looking and seeing like, oh, have we got any virtual power plants? And there's some coverage about how it could be a great system. But, you know, this is interesting that it's actually going to happen. They're putting together a team to work on it. But also, yeah, it's very much in Google's interests yeah and like some interesting uh class things going on there as well i suppose i mean you framed it earlier as you know your electric car your thermostat and all that and as you were saying it i was just thinking i don't don't own any of those (laughs) we've already talked editorial budgets are uh, plummeting (laughs) of course we don't have any of that so this very much something which affects people for whom the energy crisis already isn't biting as hard as as those who are perhaps less economically advantaged. Well, we're going to wrap up this month's podcast with our projects and products section. Uh, We have two things for this month, the first of which is quite exciting. India, did you own a Walkman when you were... uh, young yes i did and actually oh i looked it up it was like the nw3000 or something and it was purple and it was shiny and it was shaped like an egg oh lovely is this a, a classic cassette or are no, we in the territory no, of this, cds this this is actually post cd this was my first mp3 player but it was uh, a walkman thrilling news for you then <laughs> which is this week sony is launching Two new Walkmans, the NWA300 and the NWZNX700. And you've probably seen it. They've received a lot of press attention. Um, and I think because the design is really pleasing. They look really nice. Yeah, it's very tech nostalgic. And I think people like it because it looks like what you think a tech product should look like in your head. It has a lot, if, if you're of a certain age. No, no, it does. Say. It looks exactly, um, I know I'm, because I'm dating myself by saying my first Walkman was an MP3 player. But um, 
my grandfather was a dentist and he had a um an old-fashioned tape loading dictaphone oh yes lovely. which had yeah. all the buttons and he gave it to me and I used to record all of my own radio shows <laughs> look at me now award-winning podcast co-host um well that's what the walkman grew out of it grew out of, of the so- it grew out of the sony pressman which was a type <sighs> of dictaphone which um Sony head honchos said, oh, well, could we adapt this? That's why you see quite a big difference between the first ever Walkman and the second generation. Uh Because the first one was very much an adapted press man, whereas the second one was designed more from scratch. So there's a direct lineage. Oh, my goodness. So this is why I have such a rush of nostalgia when I look at this new Walkman. Yeah. And, I mean, I think most people would think, well, the Walkman is kind of now dead technology because we listen to it on our phones. But that seems to have been what has got people excited about these new Walkmen. They're full of, like, satisfying buttons. They do have a a touchscreen, but lots of buttons you can operate it with. And also lots of ports. I've discovered through looking through design uh, Twitter, design people really like ports, the option to plug different types of things into it. Well, everyone was absolutely outraged when um, Apple decided to take away the headphone jack. But the interesting thing is, these things have gone, uh, they've gone viral. Like Everyone is quite excited about them. But that's really odd because Sony has actually been producing these Android-powered Walkmen for... Um, years since 2012 I think the first one came out and it it just I think speaks to these are products which are very much out of date in lots of ways like these are not the way most people are consuming music now whereas for a time the Walkman very much was but I think they they really captured that nostalgia and that sense of people love that type of physical design that type Mm -hmm. of product and for for the sort of person who maybe wants a vinyl player in their home and really loves all of that, the Walkman is kind of now in that category. Mm. Well, I think there's that sort of interesting thing where technology can go one of two ways. You either go right to the cutting edge or you go right to the kind of nostalgic past. Um, I mean, vinyl is quite hard to get hold of at the moment. Oh, yeah, there's a shortage, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, there's a shortage. So um, actually a lot of bands that I know are making tapes cassettes like cassettes yeah. have really come back in a big way and am i correct in thinking this I, walkman has I find a... that slightly annoying <laughs> <laughs> i think that's very effective oh. i think it's like releasing your new album on wax cylinder or something it's like you do have that oh do me a favor like that's too much but am i right in thinking this walkman has an option where you can add vinyl sounds oh the music? does it i, I don't know I that. think, that's quite exciting i think okay. maybe producer ever will have to fact check this but i think i read something about it and there is a there's a you can make it sound more like vinyl oh that's quite true but i think that adds to the sense of this now being for really like music nerds and Mm. things and i think there's this interesting evolution over the course of it because if you don't have the original sony walkman you don't have portable cd players you don't end up with um ipods and there's quite an interesting tech logical lineage there um but the the original i the original walkman i was looking up had quite a limited run they only made thirty thousand of them and apparently the reason was sony wasn't convinced it would be a huge success they thought uh music lovers won't want it they like having that dedicated home stereo system that's really good quality i mean obviously they were proved wrong and this thing was a massive hit but it's quite interesting to see that reversal in the walkman where it's 
it's no longer the means of making music really widespread and the way in which everyone is engaging with music. And it itself has become this sort of design suggestive of connoisseurship in a way in which that home stereo was originally. You're only going to buy one of these Walkman if you really care about fidelity. Like, it should give you better audio quality than listening on your phone. So it's quite an interesting journey for that product category over time, Mm. I think. And our second project to discuss this week, I think, has some resonances with some of the things we've talked about earlier around ways in which tech is being used. Is it being used to address real needs, privacy and so on? And this is Slow-Mo. It's a new digital therapy service for those suffering from psychosis, which has been developed by a team from the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience at King's College London in conjunction with Special Projects, a design studio founded by Clara Gaguero-Westaway and Adrian Westaway. And it's um, it's big news. It's been funded by the Welcome, the Welcome Trust. To the tune of 1.3 million, so yeah. some serious mm-hmm. funding behind and it. And it's been in use for three NHS trusts. Uh, it hasn't been in use for three NHS trusts. It's been a pilot phase okay. for a couple of years. Um, some sort of peer-reviewed studies haven't been completed on it in that time, and it's been found to be effective. Uh, the Welcome Trust money is to then scale uh, that up to allow two. it to go mm-hmm. to three NHS trusts. So the idea is that this is a digital platform which uh, patients and therapists can use as part of the treatment for psychosis. And interestingly, they um, they also have a, a kind of offline physical version of this because not every uh, patient may have access to a smartphone and also, um, you know, people's particular psychosis hallucinations or paranoias may revolve around technology or um, kind of spying and... Uh, yeah, exactly. It's. I think it's, without generalising, it's an area where people might not feel comfortable mm-hmm. using tech sometimes. So they've also designed some physical cards you can take which do the same thing. So this is a really fascinating design project because it's an interface design. It's an interface which exists in both physical and digital realms. And what I like about it is it shows... It's an interface that is very context-specific, that isn't just trying to be slick and easy to use but which has thought quite deeply about its user base which is thinking about what are the people who might use this therapy what would they want from this what is a way to make it work and obviously if perhaps you're suffering from psychosis you might have real concerns around privacy and what's being shared so a lot of thought has gone into that for instance all personal data if you use the app is stored on your device. It's not stored centrally. If you want to sync the app, so it updates with your therapist, that's a conscious choice you have to make. So it's an area, I think, that shows that interface design can be quite powerful and there's some really good reflections to be had there. And it's interesting to see interfaces designed in this realm of healthcare without a sort of commercial imperative. You know, this isn't a sort of um, health tech company trying to make a quick buck or anything like that. It's quite nice to see, well, what kind of interfaces do you end up with when you don't have that commercial imperative, when you're not trying to flog someone something to someone? Yes, although I would say there is a commercial imperative and that imperative is reducing the amount of face-to-face contact with therapists who are quite expensive to train and retain. <laughs> And there Fine. is this, there Fine. is this general, this uh, you know, and not to be a downer because I do think this is a really impressive 
Um, Project is a really impressive app. It's had some really good results from its trial and anything that can help people who, you know, need um, like tailored help uh, in an overstretched system. That is a worthy pursuit. But there is this wider, um, it's what call, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Cotton calls the uberization of mental health, mm, which sure. is this idea that you are kind of outsourcing everything to apps and face-to-face care has been really downgraded. And actually, interestingly, they've done studies and um, a lot of psychologists and mental health practitioners are more depressed than they've ever been. And part of that is removing that face-to-face contact and being able to give people that quality of care that our treatment of um you know severe mental illness yeah. in this country is in a really shocking state no absolutely so. you're, you're right to highlight that broader context mm-hmm. in which this sits a- agreed so yeah we all know about funding issues in the nhs mm-hmm. and how hard it is for the nhs to deliver its services so clearly that's something which tech is being aimed at more widely to try and fill and there are issues with that you're right there there are problems but if the interface can also work as prompt cards i think that really is testament to how the interface has been designed like if it can cross platforms if it can be 3d or 2d if it can be virtual physical i think that's really interesting yeah and i suppose that's the context within which special projects are having to operate we're having to operate in a country where healthcare is radically underfunded where people aren't getting the care they need how do you try and respond to that through this project and i I think this was one we'll be looking into more carefully over time but the announcement this week of um the welcome funding is worth highlighting it and worth uh, flagging up something that i think is an interesting project and it's an interesting move within interface design. One of our resolutions this year was to try and keep our very well-informed and insightful ramblings to under an hour. So I think that's definitely all we've got time for. Yeah, I think another resolution is to be a, a bit more ruddy grateful to those who've helped us. So in that spirit, thank you very much this week to Convene in 22 Bishop's Gate, who have kindly hosted us uh, so we can do this in person. Hopefully you've noticed the sparkiness of our back and forth uh, in-person interaction. If you'd like to know more about Convene, uh, which is a meeting and workspace in the City of London, visit convene.com. And if you want to get in touch with us, we can be reached at thecrit at designojournal.com. Send us all of your eyebrow trimmers and the like. Um, or you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram. We are at designojournal. That's all one word, all lowercase. And we will be back in February with the next edition of The Crit. Until then, hope you enjoy your time in design. Is that a good tag? No, that's a worse tagline. I think I've tanked it. Uh, Evie, just roll the credits. I've messed it up. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Crit. I've been your host, India Block, along with Ollie Stratford. This episode was produced and edited by Evie Hall with assistance from Lara Chapman. Our theme music is composed by Yuri Suzuki with Team Suzuki at Pentagram. And our logo is by Leonard Rothmoser. 